Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 13 entitled Legal versus Practical. Have you ever had a client ask you a question and you know the answer, but you hesitate because you know that the correct legal answer might mislead them down a path of incorrect understanding? Or perhaps the reverse, you know that by giving them an understanding of how the answer applies in the real world, but that by helping them with that understanding, you're actually not giving them the true legal answer. Here's an example. Your client asks you, if I make one of these lasting powers of attorney, who decides whether I've lost mental capacity and can use it? So from a legal perspective, you might answer that the court of protection has the ultimate say in this situation. That would be correct. But as you know, there's far more to be considered from a practical real world point of view. There are the Mental Capacity Act principles to be considered in this answer. It's rarely as simple as, has the person lost capacity? As the decision on the table needs to be considered in light of the four principles. Is the person able to understand all the relevant information that they need to make the decision? Are they able to remember that information for long enough to be able to properly consider it? Are they able to weigh up the information and apply it to their own situation in order to come to a decision? And a fourth point, of course, are they able to communicate that decision? And then there are the real world factors of simply what happens in reality with most families in that situation. Particularly with a slow decline of capacity, what happens is that, of course, the spouse or maybe the children start to gradually take over the practical everyday functions of making financial decisions and assisting with health and welfare decisions. So simply giving the legal answer of the court of protection, it's not enough. There are, with many client questions, the legal answers and the practical answers. And those answers are not always the same. I spotted this distinction some years ago, and since then I've found it immensely useful to be able to identify these types of questions or these types of explanations that need to be given to the client. It's an identification of the nature of the question that needs to be established first. As a tip, if you find yourself hesitating over a question, examine this point. Is there a different legal answer to the practical answer. I'll give you a few more examples shortly, but before that, let me give you one other tip that's almost universally applicable when it comes to answering client questions. And that is to establish the purpose of the question. What I mean by that is to understand why the client is asking the question in the first place. What is the purpose that they're attempting to achieve? Consider this first example If I make an LPA, who decides if I've lost capacity? Well, what's the purpose of that question? The client is almost certainly trying to figure out if somebody has the ability to take over their affairs prematurely. 
They're probably wanting to reassure themselves that they're not just handing over all power of choice to their attorney. By understanding the purpose of the question, you can align your answer accordingly. Because maybe that's not their purpose. Maybe they're not thinking about this in terms of themselves. But perhaps they have a family member who they are the attorney for, and they're trying to find out when and how they can assist their family member or start to assist their family member. The nature, the purpose of the question changes the answer that you would potentially give to them. Our subject is very technical and we have a great deal of understanding about our technical field and can think through the intricacies of how the legal world relates to the practical world. But consider that your client doesn't necessarily know what question to ask. Again, just staying with our first example here, the question seems logical. Who decides if I have capacity? It seems like the right question, but it'd be better for the client to outline their concern and ask you to explain. Clients don't always do that, so you need to be alert to this fact and make sure that you establish the purpose of the question that is being asked. Then you can answer appropriately. Think of another client question, such as, are funeral directions in a will legally binding? Legal answer, of course, is no. But what's the purpose of a client asking this question? If they're considering putting funeral directions in their will, they must be asking for a reason, mustn't they? Probably because they do have some directions they'd like to leave about their funeral. If that's the purpose of the question, then you can tailor your answer accordingly. But again, perhaps they're asking because they have had a family member who's passed away and the family member has some funeral directions in their will and they're not sure that that's really what the client would have wanted in their later days. But are the directions legally binding? Do they have to follow them? Can you see also that there is a legal answer to this question and a practical answer? No, funeral directions are not legally binding in the will. But from a practical point of view, it's extremely sensible to put some directions in the will. They can use the will to do that, to give some directions to their family members about what they would have wanted at their funeral. And they probably should. If their directions are extensive, then it might also be sensible to leave an accompanying letter of wishes or directions, and the existence of such a letter could be mentioned in the will too. Let's take a few more examples of these types of questions. Question, is there a national will register? Legal answer, no. There is no government register of wills. Practical answer, there are several private companies that collect list of wills that have been written and where they're stored. They make money from the registration of the information or potentially from the retrieval of the information. And again, what is the purpose of this question? It might be that the client has recently made a will and wants to know if or where to register the will. Legal answer would be more appropriate here, wouldn't it? Or perhaps the purpose of the question is because they have had a family member die recently and need to find out if they had made a will. The practical answer would then be more appropriate. Here's another question. What happens to the will when I die? Legal answer. If the will is needed, then it's presented to the probate court for validation. Practical answer. Nothing. It will sit in a drawer, or in the cupboard, or in the solicitor's filing cabinet. 
the family have to find the will first, then they need to present it to the probate court for validation if it's needed. Question. My house isn't registered at the land registry. Do I need to register it? Legal answer, no. Practical answer, well really yes. It'll certainly help to have that done so that it doesn't delay any future sale of the property. Plus, it's somewhat more secure and if the paper deeds were to be lost, it could be costly, stressful and highly problematic. Some years ago, we had a couple that came to us as Mr. was dying and he wanted to make a will. This was a deathbed will. Mr. was a very intelligent man and sadly he was still only in his 50s and his wife was in her late 40s. He understood the concept of a property protection trust and decided that was a sensible way of protecting half of their property as Mrs. was, well, frankly, still very marriable. We executed the will rapidly and submitted the severance documents to the land registry within 24 hours. A couple of days later, he passed away. He had some personal possessions that he wanted to go to his children and one other family member. All other assets were jointly owned and so passed to his wife. After the funeral, the wife asked us to assist with probate. Now, of course, the only thing really that needed to be done was the updating of the title of the property. We took payment for the service and drew up the paperwork. On the day that we were supposed to meet her to get everything signed, she rang to cancel the appointment and requested a refund. What had happened was that a friend of hers had recommended she speak to a local solicitor before doing anything else. She'd met with the solicitor and been advised that she doesn't need to obtain probate or actually do anything with regards to the trust as she had the will, quote, safely stored at home, end quote, and that only when she sells the house would she need to do anything with the will. So no, don't bother spending any money now, just wait until it's needed. Now, you can see the difference here between the legal answer and the practical answer, can't you? From a practical perspective, that will is now subject to loss or damage. Suppose she decides to have a clear out and the Will is accidentally thrown out with the rest of the trash. She meets somebody new, gets married, and dies before a new husband. Nobody can find the will, so intestacy is presumed and the new husband gets the lot. Exactly what our original client did not want to happen. So, clearly the solicitor that the wife had spoken to here didn't establish the purpose of the question or did not distinguish or perhaps even understand the practical potential consequences of giving a legal answer only. What about the bane of the professional estate planner's life, the DIY will kits? A common question about them is, are they legally valid or perhaps are they legally binding? Well, yes, of course they are. And actually, that is part of the problem, isn't it? If they've been written incorrectly, then that's a huge problem as they are legally binding. And there's a little tip of how you can actually deal with that question, by the way. But the practical answer would require you to find out the purpose of the question. Perhaps they've had a family member that has recently passed and they'd made a DIY will. Or maybe the person asking you is thinking of making one themselves. Or maybe it's just something like they're thinking of buying one as a present for somebody. 
I had that once at a networking meeting. One of the attendees had said that he had, just the day before, actually picked up a will kit from Staples, the shop. He was going to give it to his brother as a birthday present, as his brother had been saying for years that he and his wife needed to make a will, and it had become something of a family joke to ask the brother, have you done your will yet? So the straightforward question of, are DIY will kits legally binding? Understand the purpose first, and you're much more likely to be able to give a meaningful and relevant answer. So what can you do about this differential between legal and practical? Well, we've looked at defining the purpose of the question. That helps and can often just on its own clarify the type of answer that you need to give. But there are two other tips that can help you and your client here too. Firstly, it can help your client if you actually just point out that there is a legal answer and there's a practical answer. Simply be clear about that distinction and perhaps give a few examples. Help your client to make their own distinction between the two possible answers to their question. So if we pick up on one of the questions that we've already looked at, let's say the question about whether or not they need to register their property at the land registry. So you can say to the client, well, look, there is a legal answer to that question and there's a practical answer to the question. The legal answer is that, no, you actually don't need to do that. But from a practical perspective, here's why you should. So just making that distinction, you've then given a clear message to the client that isn't misleading them one way or the other. Second tip here is to differentiate between symptoms and sources of a problem. This is very similar to establishing the purpose of the question, but it's just a different way of looking at the same concept. If your client is asking you a question that feels awkward to answer, and you identify this as being a situation with a legal and a practical difference, then try to identify the source of the problem. Imagine if you had a burst pipe in your kitchen and water was slowly but steadily making its way out from under the sink and across the kitchen floor. Sure, you need to mop up, but you really need to fix the bus pipe or you'll be mopping up forever. Same with some questions that clients ask. The equivalent of, what is the best mop that I can buy for a kitchen floor? Great question for the immediate and very visible problem, but it doesn't handle the source. So when you get a question from a client, it feels a bit awkward. You can see there's a difference between the legal answer, the practical answer. Take a look again at, well, what's the purpose? Sure. But also, what is it that they're trying to solve? What problem are they trying to understand better so that they can get to the root of the problem? We had a couple once who were putting a will together and we had recommended a property protection trust for the usual reasons. They wanted to make a couple of amendments to the initial draft and a question was asked, do we need to include this trust thing? Now, of course, the legal answer to that question is no, you don't need to, you don't have to include this trust. From a practical perspective, we knew what problems they were trying to solve. We knew what future situations could happen and the trust was a valid way of protecting against those problems. But what were they trying to solve? The symptom of the problem was that the will appeared to be more complex, which of course it was. And what they were wanted to do was simplify things for their children. 
So there we have a will which is apparently more complex, children who they didn't feel would be able to deal with that situation come the day that they both pass away and that the children might not understand what they have to do. But that was a symptom, wasn't it? It's a symptom of a lack of confidence in their children's ability to be executors and handle probate for what appears to be a slightly more complex will. But what's the source of the problem? The source of the problem is that they might have chosen the incorrect people to be executors. They might not have understood the fact that the children would be able to get help with being executors. They could pass the work over to a solicitor, in other words, to help them to do the estate administration. So the source of the problem was something of a lack of understanding about what the duties are of an executor and what choices they have in the future. You see the difference between the symptom and the source of the problem there. All right, so I hope that when you start to observe this in the conversations that you have with your clients over the next few weeks, you'll find it as useful as I have done to distinguish between legal answers to questions and practical answers. And indeed, I hope you're finding this whole podcast useful. If you are, I'd love to hear about it. You can leave comments on the Podbean app or you can write to me at anthony.brinkman at twp.co.uk. I'm always happy to receive feedback or suggestions for topics that you would like to hear about. I wish you all the best until the next episode. And as always, thank you for listening.